right. I'm just going to pray. Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit. We welcome him in our presence today. The person of the Trinity we can't see at this point. We thank you that he's working amongst us. We say, be free and speak to us today. And help us to understand your word. Lord, we just pray that you open our eyes, that you'll help us to see the wonderful things in your book, in the Bible. Help us to know that the book is of you, and it came from you. And the Holy Spirit joined all the books together to make one unique publication (laughs) in the whole earth. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. If you've got a Bible, and I hope you have, you turn to, in the Old Testament, the Bible, yeah, it's on? Down, okay. Is that right then? Is that down enough? <laughs> okay. Isaiah in the Old Testament and chapter 53. Chapter 3. How ordered it is, isn't it? How useful to have it in chapters and verses. We can look up where it is. Now, you need to jump just a few verses. 53 we're going to read as a matter of importance. But I just want to go to a few verses before that in 52 and verse 13. And before we start reading it, I just tell it for the sake we all understand where we're going. It's actually about Jesus. So roughly about 700 years before Jesus actually came. Um, so that's quite a few moments of history, isn't it? <laughs> 700 years. And someone writes 700 years before Jesus about him in a very specific way. So let's read right, Isaiah 52 and verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. That's the one we've been lifting up and highly exalting this morning. Jesus. Verse 14, just as there were many who were appalled at him, jaws dropped, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations. Don't understand that, do you? Well, we'll see. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces. 
he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before her shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away or moved out of the way. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great or the many and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It was written by a man as a, as a, what the Bible calls a major prophet, or what we call today a major prophet. There are major and minor prophets in the Bible. And I've got some major and minor prophets in the Bible here this morning. There's one very important thing about the Bible. It's known amongst theologians, and that's the, what they call the prophetic seal. It's one thing that binds the whole of Scripture together, and it's that God spoke to men throughout, in times past, and he's now spoken in the last days by his son Jesus. And by the power of God's Holy Spirit who caused people to write things like this. Okay. It's actually God declaring what was going to happen before it happened. Right. Now, this, this prophet Isaiah, he speaks very much and very dramatically about the cross and the death of Jesus Christ. Did you see that as we read it together? Very detailed, very expressive, and very dramatic. Another prophet called Zechariah, he actually speaks of different things about Jesus, but not so much about the cross. 
or the death of Jesus Christ. He speaks of other things. And, um, and yet they speak different things, and yet they're actually joined together. And the Bible, here's the major prophets. Isaiah's a major prophet. Daniel's a major prophet. Don't count them because the numbers are wrong. <laughs> okay. But there's a link between the books of the Bible and the prophets that spoke about Jesus, particularly in the Bible. And we can trace it right back and back and back and back. And they're actually linked together spiritually. In other words, God, by the power of his spirit, caused men to write things which agreed with one another, but they weren't handed down. Now, Paul as the apostle in the New Testament, he talks about things being handed down to us, but only through Jesus, because actually Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. But the prophets never handed things down to one another. They never came to say, now guys, we need to write this, and we need to agree about this, and we need to just make sure that, um, you know, there's no mistake here, And um, we must get it right so that people in the future will understand what we're writing about. None of that. God moved men by his Holy Spirit to say things that all agreed with one another in the end. They actually agreed finally and completely in Jesus. So that when Jesus came, it was the right person, of the right genealogy, at the right time, in the right place to do the right thing that God wanted. And they actually brought all this truth about Jesus together. The prophetic seal. We call it the prophetic seal. And it's the one important thing about the Bible which makes that book unique. Who else could put a book together like this? People, men from different walks of life in different situations. And in a sense, they actually agree with actually what's going to happen. Amazing, isn't it? So in the Bible, there are major and minor prophets. That doesn't mean to say they're any less important. But they're there. We love that, Daphne. Margaret did it. (laughs) Very good, love. Thank you very much. Major and minor prophets. But the Bible has this definitive thing about it emphasis that God has spoken by his prophets in past days but now he speaks to us through his son whom he's appointed heir of all things he's appointed heir of all isn't that wonderful absolutely wonderful and when John I put my major and minor prophets there now don't have a fight you guys just it's all over now all right the prophetic seal, holding things together. But not only did they hold things together as far as Jesus is concerned and what he's done for us, but it holds thing, all things together for the future. We're still living in the light of what God has said by his prophets that will come together in the days that are yet to come. One of the great and important things that we need to remember this morning out of this message is we're remembering the death and the cross of Jesus is that what Jesus died for has largely to be known in the future. And that's wonderful, isn't it? Jesus is actually coming again. Does you believe that? 
same one who appeared here on the earth and walked amongst men is actually coming, the same person again. He will have in his hands the wounds of the cross and in his side, and they will be recognizable. The Bible tells us that in days to come there will be false Christs and false messiahs, but there's only one that has the marks of the crucifixion in his hands. They will be there for eternity. A man in heaven, but he has the marks of the crucifixion. Now let's go back. One of the earliest things that's actually said about the cross of Jesus Christ was actually in Genesis, and it's in Genesis 3, verse 15. If you want to turn to it. Now, if we all know the story of Genesis and the story of Adam and Eve in the garden and how, in essence, they, they chose to do or to develop their lives against God rather than with him. It was actually, the Bible would actually call it a very big word, rebellion. You know, when we do what we want to do, making our own choices in our own way, we're actually declaring our rebellion against God. That's what the Bible's saying. So Adam and Eve ultimately rebelled against God. They were under the influence of temptation by Satan himself, And yet in those days, God gave a wonderful promise about what would happen. Genesis 3, verse 15. And I will put, this is what God is saying to Satan, and I will put enmity between you and the woman... And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It's just those last few words. I know there's a lot there we've read. But it says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It's about conflict between Satan and Jesus. And it says that God will allow Satan to bite his heel. So we might not really understand that, but it means that Satan will be allowed to inflict suffering and wounds on Jesus. But in actual fact, by those wounds, he was actually crush Satan's head. Now there's a bit of a mystery there, and that's my first point, because I want us to see the cross as a mystery. Because, in a sense, we might not understand that fully, but it's actually speaking about what would happen in the future, that Jesus would suffer and be wounded, and yet he would not have victory in that, but Jesus would have the victory. Now think about poor old Moses, who wrote Genesis, when he came to this. I wonder what he thought about it. Did he stop to think? Did he stop to think that this was a tremendous promise from God 4,000 years ago or so of something that would happen in the future? What do you think about it? I don't understand it fully. Many theologians would admit to not understanding it fully. But here, essentially for us this morning, God gives a promise that all that happened in the garden 
that he was going to do something about. So here's the beginning of God's amazing plan. God's amazing plan. The cross as a mystery will remain a mystery because Paul, writing to New Testament Christians, said, it's a mystery that's been held since the beginning of time that is now being revealed to us. You know, as I looked at the congregation in the cathedral on Thursday, I think they thought that everything that was going on was a bit of a mystery. Helen and Steve, could we have the... um, We've got a little bit of the service from the cathedral coming up. You like to play it? I come amongst you as wanting to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now today is, is sort of Palm Sunday and uh, if we went to the Anglican churches today we'd probably get a little palm um, cross this morning and um, it would be sort of a symbol, you know, that we remember that Jesus came and died for us and gave his life for us. It also reminds us, too, of the palm trees that were laid out as Jesus came into Jerusalem, as he rode into Jerusalem. The people thought this was a time of victory, but it wasn't God's time for victory. God had promised victory right from the beginning of time over sin, death, and the devil. And I think it's so wonderful to see that here, 2,000 plus, Peggy, it's more than 2,000 years now, all right? Yeah, right? <laughs> I think it's about six years ago you said to us, you know, people, preachers keep saying it's nearly 2,000 years ago. It's more than that now. But down through history, down through history, 
the message of the cross, Jesus Christ crucified, has been laid in foundation since the beginning of time. And here we are today holding on, holding on to the truth that this is the heart of the gospel, it's the heart of the church, that we remember that Jesus came, he suffered and died and bled for us to deal with sin, to deal with sin. There are two principles that run right away through scripture. The first one is, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. And number two, the sacrifices that the Jewish people repeatedly made year after year could never take away sin. The writer of the Hebrew tells us that Jesus' coming and his death for us on the cross has dealt with sin. The promise that's given here, it's not explained fully, but it's the promise of God's amazing plan to deal with sin in the earth. Now the wonderful thing is today, that here today in Herne Bay, God can deal with my sin. He can deal with all my past, all my failures, all my regrets. And he wants to give me life. But there's only one place it can be dealt with, and that's at the cross, where Jesus gave his life for us. So remember those two things. The sacrifices repeatedly made on our behalf and their behalf can never take away sin. But the Bible also tells us that Jesus coming and giving his life as a sacrifice was one sacrifice made in the end of the age to put away sin, to deal with it. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so in a sense, people all throughout history were living in the shadow of the cross. Even when Jesus came, people were living in the shadow of the cross. And we've got another picture coming up here now, and it's called the carpenter's shop. It caused a lot of problem, this picture. But just to point out one or two things, this is Jesus, in case you didn't recognise him, with a ginger hair. This is supposed to be John the Baptist here, bringing water to dress his wounds. It is supposedly... Jesus has cut his hand on a nail, but it's sort of dripped onto his foot here, the blood. And um, these are different people here. Obviously, that's Joseph there, and that's, that's Mary there. On the wall, there's a, a, a set square with three points. And uh, the, the summary of the picture is that it's, it's a picture of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The sheep out in the field, reminder of the flock, of followers that Jesus had and still has today. And there are lots of other things in there. The wood in there supposedly remind us that Jesus actually died on a wooden cross on a tree. But this picture brought problems because the painter had actually used people from his family to build up the picture and other people in where, where he lived and, and stuff like that. And Charles Dickens made such a fuss about it, he was an outcry about this painting of what he'd done. Whatever you say, there is still an outcry. Thanks, uh, Helen. There is always an outcry. Even Hitler 
supposed to be a Christian, thought he wanted to deal with the Jews. He was out crying about the Jews crucifying Jesus. It was in his psyche. It was not quite right, but that was in his psyche. You know, an outcry because of what happened, the whole death and the situation with Jesus Christ. So that's the first biblical reference we have to the death of Jesus Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ. And on Palm Sunday, and in the heart of Christianity, the heart of the church this morning, we remember Jesus, who came for us and gave his life for us. The cross is a mystery. Moses was writing under God's direction. Moses wrote in simple language, and he wrote for the benefit of uneducated people at the level of people who were slaves at that time. And uh, although it was written to inform us, it's created a lot of misunderstanding. So people treat cross as a mystery. There are many people today and many Christians who treat this story in the Garden of Eden as an allegory, not as fact. And yet there's a wonderful intertwining going on here in this story, how God is revealing his purpose in the earth. When Moses records the precise years where early people were born and died, he is then writing as a historian. He's actually recording these facts so that they could be passed on. Those who treat God's revelation as mythology cannot be surprised if the quality of their comprehension suffers. This morning we come again, and the point is, on Palm Sunday we come again to remember what Jesus did for us. And if we simply do that, we could go away this morning and have done the greatest thing which Paul said and which Justin Welby had said in the cathedral, God forbid that I should boast in anything else but the cross of Jesus Christ. So this morning we have just this simple privilege to boast in what Jesus has done for us. In our worship, we were thanking God for what he's done through Jesus for each one of us. And we glory in that. So the cross will be, in a sense, a mystery. It was a mystery in time past. It was myst- I wonder what Isaiah thought as he was writing that passage which we wrote together. Did you notice that Isaiah began writing that as if he was a witness of what had happened, and yet he wasn't there. Amazing, isn't it? God speaking by his prophets, revealing his heart to the world. So the cross as a mystery. The cross as a message. This is not an old sermon here. I've spoken it here before, but not in quite the same way. But the cross itself is an actual fact, a message in itself. If any man be in Christ, Paul says, he is a new creation. The old things are gone and the new has come. Being in Christ means we've come to the place to understand what Jesus has done for us and by faith we accept it. That's what being in Christ is. Baptism usually follows as a recognition that I'm now committed to Christ to follow him. But if any man is in Christ, 
he is a new creation. I read earlier, or, or, or quoted from Hebrews earlier, that um, Jesus, God spoke in times past, and in these last days has spoken to us by his Son. And the cross is in itself a message. It's a message with power because it can change my life and it can change each one of our lives here today. It can change it from our regrets, our failures, and to change our life into lives with hope and assurance and knowing that one day we can stand before God clothed in our righteousness, clothed in his righteousness and accepted by God. That's the power of the cross. And it has become a message. It was a message to the godly prophets, but they probably didn't understand it. It was a mystery. Today, there are people who will still sit with blank faces when you talk about the cross, about Jesus dying. I wonder, in your spirit this morning, is there some sort of blankness? You know, you say, I, I understand so much, but I don't understand that. I understand it as a story that, you know, here was a man who was a Jew that did wonderful things, and yet the Jews, they just rejected him, didn't want ever, anything to do with him. But the Bible has this mystery about it that what they did to rid themselves of Jesus, God wanted to happen because it was part of God's amazing plan to redeem the world to himself. And God's amazing plan is at work this morning. It can change my mind, it can change my heart, it can change my life, and it can give me hope. It can give me purpose in life. And so actually it's a message, the cross is a message of hope. The cross is also a message of deliverance. So my uncle did that yesterday and he's preaching at Folkestone and he said to me, make sure you preach on deliverance tomorrow. Make sure you break a curse tomorrow. Well, I can't actually do that just like that. But the whole point about it is this. Satan has blinded the eyes of those who will not believe. So in other words, if we come to the cross, to the gospel, with a sense it's myth, or it's just an allegory, or it's not part of God's amazing plan, in a sense that's building up or setting our eyes away from God, what God really wants for us. God's eternal an amazing plan, so that it becomes revelation and not mystery. Becomes revelation and not mystery. The cross is a message of hope, it's a message of deliverance, but it's a message for future days and not just today. It's a message for future days. Everybody's wondering about climate change, you know, being fearful and afraid about that. People in Cyprus are really suffering because of financial situation. Many people in our own country are afraid because of what they might lose. 
we might lose everything. But the best thing that we can gain is Jesus. The best thing we can gain is him. Because if we gain him, we gain life. So it's a message about the future. Speaking about future days, the Bible says that they will look on him whom they pierced. Largely spoken to the Jewish people who will then recognize that this is the true Messiah who God sent. But today, we can accept for ourselves and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the true Messiah that God sent. The one and only one, saviour of the world. Lastly, cross as a magnet. Jesus said by himself, of himself, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Will he draw all men to himself? Is a question we might ask. All men? He's explaining, doesn't it? I will draw those people who are seeking after me. It's probably the correct interpretation. The, the cross where Jesus died can mean nothing to many people. But if we're seeking after God and seeking for him, there's only one way we can come, and, and it's by the cross. You know, John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, you know, his time is at the cross. That's where his theology was, you know. The cross is God's amazing plan. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the fulfillment of God's amazing plan. And I'm not going to do that because that's Steve's doing that next week. But the whole point about it is that this morning we glory in the cross. So the cross as a magnet with power, what does it mean? It means it attracts people. It attracts people. He's not interested in attracting animals because they don't understand it. He's not interested in attracting people who have no desire for God at all. But for those who are seeking after God and want to reach out for him, you will find that the cross is that which ultimately draws us to the place of repentance and the place of accepting why he came on what he did for us. The cross as a magnet. By saying that, Jesus was saying how he was going to die. Because John says in that verse, Jesus said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The kind of death that Jesus died, we read about in Isaiah 53. That's the kind of death he died. And what kind of death was that? It was a death which brought victory. This is what we read. It was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. In other words, God was in full agreement with what happened to Jesus, even though men took him and rejected him. It was God's will to cause him to 
to crush him and cause him to suffer. This is what it says, and though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, this is the first thing, he will see his offspring, he will see his offspring. Now earlier on we read in verse 8, and who can speak of his descendants? Jesus had no earthly family. He was brought up in a family. But it's something which he didn't have, an earthly family. And so when the Bible says, and who can speak of his descendants, it says, no, we can't speak of his descendants because he didn't have any. But then Isaiah turns us to this point, that he will see his offspring. Who then are his offspring? What a privilege it is to say that I'm a child of God this morning. The Bible tells us about Jesus, he will see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. So the cross is a magnet and we're drawn to it because the cross speaks of victory. It speaks of victory over sin, death and Satan. That's the problem with the world. Sin, death and Satan. And yet we come this morning and we recognise the cross where Jesus died as the point of God's victory, fulfilling his promise in the end of the age. The cross where Jesus died. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. And this is what the next bit says. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The will of the Lord. This is a message of victory. Some perceive the death of Jesus as, you know, oh, well, you know, he died, he was got rid of, he needed to be punished, and that was it. But that's not so. This was God's amazing plan. Not only did we see his offspring, but in other words, what God originally intended for a perfect world where there's no sin, no death, no suffering, was actually made good at the cross. Made good at the cross. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Of all the men that walked with God and all the people that worked with God, the complete will of God was never prospered in their hands. But it was in the hands and the life of Jesus. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Verse 11 says, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Light of life in the earth. Light of life in my life. Sometimes we talk about our husband or spouse being the light of our life, don't we? You know? Did you nod then, Derek? Okay, good. I'm glad you did. I'll be trouble later. But he will see the light through the suffering of Jesus. He will see the light of life and be satisfied. And God will be satisfied too. Because he restored, he restored the honour to God that he didn't take away. He restored the honour to God that he didn't take away. Amazing, isn't it? All the dishonour that the world gives him has been restored to God in his hands. 
He will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant, Jesus, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. That is a tremendous word. You know, we need to be justified before God. It's no good trying to justify ourselves. That won't happen, and it can't happen. There's only one that can justify us in the presence of God, and that's the one that's dealt with my sin. We spoke about the many earlier on in the chapter that we read together. The many. The many who despised him and rejected him. The many who were looking at him with no, placing no value on him. The people who were poo-pooing the whole idea of a man who should die for us. The men who were rejecting him and turning him away. And hailing him with the Jews saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. He's no king. We have no king but Caesar, they said. That's a strange thing from the Jews, isn't it? Hmm? We have no king but Caesar. We will not have this man to reign over us. You might be saying that this morning. In actual fact, I don't want this man to reign over my life. So we're brought to the point of saying, if you want Jesus to reign over your life, you will have no reign over your life. Because God will take you at your word. There's no future. There's no justification in your own words of admittance before God. There's only one way to justify my life, and that's through Jesus. Because he took it all and bore it out. It goes on to say, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgression. Remember today, God's amazing plan and the cross was the place of victory in the earth. The choice is ours. Father, we thank you. For this day, which we can remember what Jesus has accomplished for us. We thank you for the victory won for us at the cross. We thank you for the hope of eternal life and of peace with God through the ages. For all the exploration that's going to go on in the future, Lord, when we get our new bodies. Father, for a demonstration of your power in our day. Father, we come to you today and say, Lord, would you just work with us? Declare your hand, Lord. Show us your power. Reveal your good self to us. Lord Jesus, for all that you are, we thank you. And we're so glad, Lord, that his name will be exalted in the earth. But his name will be exalted for all eternity to come. Thank you, Lord, for all your goodness in Jesus' name.